two-fifths of the Step to the Mic crew in the house. Andre Jones, Chris Miles right there, my main man. And to the mic today is, in my estimation, one of the best to ever put on a helmet, shoulder pads, and cleats. Brian Mitchell, Step to the Mic. And thank you for joining us, brother. How are you today? I'm good, man. How y'all doing? We're good. We're good. One question I want to ask you before we get started. How's the golf game? Well, it's still good. I mean, uh, Virginia has stayed open, and uh, I've learned to walk a lot more on the golf course where they basically try to suggest that you, if you're in a cart, you're in a cart by yourself or you walk. And I think that's a good thing. They're, they're disinfecting the carts when they come in and when they go out. They're trying to make sure people have the opportunity to be away from guys. And then when you get on a golf course, it's up to you. You know, and many people were like, well, why are you still playing golf? Well, I go outside and I walk and I run. Why not be able to pick up a little golf in the same uh, sense? I got it. I got it. You know, Brian, as a member of the Burgundy and Gold, I was talking to some of the fellas about this. In 1990, you were drafted in the fifth round by Joe Gibbs. You came to this city and you brought fire. Everybody knew who you were from day one when you hit Carlisle, Pennsylvania with training camp. When we used to do it the right way with the media and the fans used to be right with the players. Thoughts as a fifth round draft pick with the draft just passing us. How did it feel to get your name called, come here, and did you feel you had to make your mark when you got to D.C.? Well, uh, yeah, I, I felt so. I think when I, when I was getting drafted, it was a lot different than it is now. You know, everybody is seen on TV or, uh, well, this year was virtually, but ultimately back when I got drafted after the first round, you saw nothing else on TV. I'm from the old school. But the thing of it is just I didn't care where I went, you know, what team it was, what round I went. I just wanted the opportunity. And I think that's the difference between, I guess, myself, the way I came into this league, and some other people. Some other people, they have their mindset on a certain round. If they don't get drafted in that round, 10, 15 years later, they're still concerned about the round. You know, I, was, I just wanted to have an opportunity to play. The Washington Redskins chose me in the fifth round and gave me that opportunity. And I can remember when I was talking with Ricky Irvis one day, and he said, where are you from? I said, I went to USL. He said, where's that? I said, you'll find out when we get on the football field. You know, I've always been one to where I'm going to battle you. I'm going to compete with you. I don't care what school you went to. I have athletic ability, too. And, you know, I, I, people don't know the backstory. I went to the college that I chose because my dad had a heart attack, open heart surgery when I was in the ninth grade. And that's my hero. And I did not want to go that far away. I wanted to be able to be far enough away to allow myself to grow as an individual. But I wanted to be close enough just in case something was to uh, come back. And uh, I was an hour and something away from home. and went there, had a great time in uh, uh, southwest Louisiana, and still was able to see my dad on a regular basis. And he passed away after my rookie season. You know, he, he hung around until I got to where I told him I was going to go. And uh, that's the reason I chose that school. But it wasn't that, you know, people just think that you have to be at a certain school, a certain round to make it in the NFL. All you have to do is go look at the best receiver ever to play in this game, the most yards, Jerry Rice. That's Mississippi Valley. Walter Payton was right behind Emmitt Smith, but he went to Jackson State. I went to U University of Southwest Louisiana. They changed the name now. I'm so damn old. They changed the name, and that basically tells you it doesn't make a difference where you go. It's what about when you get to the NFL, what do you have? What could you do? Can you do more? Because it doesn't take what you did in college. It takes more than what you did in college to be successful at this level. Yeah, it's Louisiana Lafayette now, right, B. Mitch? That's what they call the school yeah. now. So the reason <laughs> I know that, and you know this about me, when I first started working with you here in D.C., um, you see that poster right there? That's from working in New Orleans. And people uh -huh. 
Like when I got here, they was like, "Oh man, you know Brian Mitchell?" It's like, "Yeah, you're you're popular here, but down there, you're like this this folk hero." And for people that don't know, That's just listening place, to this man. podcast, yeah, I mean NFL's <laughs> all time leader in return yards. That's something that they could never take away from you. That's their Redskins uh, ring of honor. But I think becoming your friend, what stood out to me most was you were like, "Yeah, I played quarterback in college." I was like, "What?" And you uh-huh. put up crazy numbers. And I said, well, why didn't you play quarterback in the NFL? So I would say to you now, back then, you didn't have as many, you know, versatile guys who could run playing a quarterback mm-hmm. position. Yeah, you have Randall Cunningham, but it wasn't a slew of guys. Do you think if you came into the NFL now with the evolution of the black quarterback, with the way it's accepted, do you think you could have played quarterback in the NFL now as opposed to switching to running back? Yeah, I think I could have. I think I could have if they gave me an opportunity to do it. But, you know, my mindset was, you know, my whole life, uh, Chris, I did not dream to play quarterback at the next level. I dreamed to play at the next level. And if I wanted to remain at quarterback, I could have easily gone to Canada. And the contract they were offering in Canada was better than the contract I got in the NFL the first two years. And I eventually made more money in the NFL. But, you know, I think the, the, what they're like, myself and Brett Favre, we battled each other on a consistent basis. Played three times. I won two of those games. He won one. I passed for 299 and rushed for 991 game, passed for 343 and rushed for 134 in the other. Brett never topped none of those numbers. So if Brett Ford was successful at this level, I damn sure could have been successful at this level. But they had this issue back then. If you weren't six feet or, or taller, you weren't going to get that opportunity. I remember Terrence Jones, who played at Tulane, passed for, I think, well over 10,000 yards in college. He didn't get the opportunity. How about the guy that threw the ball to Jerry Rice, Willie Satellite Totten? He didn't get the opportunity either. So it just says that how things have transformed, but it's still not far enough along the way. We look at the NFL now where I just see that the, uh, the Green Bay Packers drafted a quarterback, and everywhere I look on TV, can you believe they did that? Aaron Rodgers should not be challenged. If you say he's the best, he should take on any challenge. But I hear everybody saying, well, Dwayne Haskins need competition. You need to have somebody to push him. Well, why the hell Aaron can't get pushed? He came into the league by pushing Brett Favre. So it's just, it's always going to be that mindset until we can get past the fact the black, white quarterback and allow that the guy, no matter what color he is, if he's good, he's good. Patrick Mahomes, to me, is the best quarterback in the NFL at this point, you know, because of what he's done over the last two years. Hey, that's a brother right there. I don't care what you want to say about mixed this, that, and the other. Got 1% you're black. And I think you need to get past that stuff and allow, understand that we can get it done too if we just give an opportunity. That's a great point, B. Mitch. Now, I remember um, at what was CSN at the time, now NBC Sports Washington, the way that you eat. Now, I know this may seem random, but, man, you order these things that look like brontosaurus burgers. And I said to Dre, <laughs> man, hey, Dre, this dude is crazy. And Dre's like, you don't know the half. So, Dre, I got to ask you, you know, you always say that B. Mitch was a crazy player. You were around him off the field when he was with the Redskins, man. I need you to enlighten me on what B. Mitch was like off the field. I got two stories about Brian off the field. (laughs) The first one, he comes to the Redskins and he has to set the tone. He's going to let you know he's the alpha in the room. So he tested the trainer. I'm going to let B. Mitch tell you that story. The second story, we got so tight that we started hanging. We were doing a show on Sunday nights at CBS. And B. Mitch said, hey, man, come on, man. We're going to go to Republic Garden. I said, okay, yeah, let's go to the gardens. Now, people don't know old school, U Street, and that thing used to fill up like Harlem. Oh, yeah. People on both sides of the street. We walk into the club. B. Mitch is the mayor of the city. 
B, I'll let you tell that story too. So you got two on, on the deck, bro. Go ahead. I well, the one with uh, Dan Raleigh. Dan Raleigh, who he and I are real good friends uh, still to this day. But when I first got there, you know, I was this guy where I came in on my visit. I had rings on my fingers and things of that sort. And he said when he saw me, he thought, well, this guy is just a little knucklehead. I'm a challenger. So they were putting weights on the bar, and I said, that's not enough weight. And he said, look, I'm the strength coach. I've been doing this forever. I said, coach, you don't know me. You're judging me based off of what you've seen. So as I, me and uh, Steve Wessel, he and I got into an argument, and then Dan came in and took over for him. So I, I was trying my best to just let it go because I'm thinking, you know, if I get into something with this coach, I'm going to get cut. I'll be out of here. Until we got into the locker room, and, you know, they had, like, this little metal thing where the, 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 the jerseys hung on. And he pulled the metal thing down and hit me in my head. So at that point, you know, I got hit, so I grabbed him. And uh, we wrestled a little bit. I drug him all over the locker room. And uh, we became buddies after that. But he went to Coach Gill, and he told him, he said, no, I started with him. I wanted to see if I could get a rookie. But he told his wife, he said, baby, I can't beat rookies anymore. This rookie just beat me. But, you know, I didn't know that. It was something I'm not supposed to. I was taught to protect myself. And once he hit me with that metal pipe, I had to let it go on him at that point. But the time when you and I went to uh, we went to Republic Guards and the guy was like, man, Brian Mitchell, man, I'm the same size as you. I could take you. And I said, nah, man, let me go in this club, man. So, you know, I went to the club. We went there. I had a few little pops. And uh, coming out, I'm feeling good. The guy like, he's still there. I say, line up. And he lined up. And I showed him what, what football was really about. You know, it's just. Everybody out there think that because I'm not bigger than they are or they the size of somebody. Like one guy told me, how much you weigh? I said, I'm 220. And he was like, 5'6". I'm 222. I said, that's a different 220. You know, but they think because they weigh the same as you or the fact that they might look a little bigger than you that they could go out and do the same things you do. So that night it just got to the point where I wanted to prove to him that uh, you're not on the same level just yet, buddy. And Chris, street cred is everything. So street cred goes on to the football field, which goes and makes the lore of Mr. Brian Mitchell, number 30 right there. Chris, let me get one more to him and I'll let you jump. Your fiery edge. I was watching the last dance with Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. He talked about the competitive nature with his brothers and how his brother Larry pushed him. Yeah. Your situation is the same. You're the youngest boy in your family. Yeah. Did those interactions and disagreements and fistfights with your brothers propel you to, you know, hey, if I could beat you, I could beat anybody. <laughs> well, uh, it got to my brothers. I think it was my two sisters that it was, uh, they were the oldest. And I kind of called them some choice words when I was a little younger and uh, I had feet end up in my face and in my chest. But growing up on my street, it was all, it was one way in, one way out. We had about, I'd say 25, 25 to 30 homes on that street. And everybody was related. And there were a, a boy at every lot. And we played football, basketball, baseball. We did everything together. And I was one of the younger kids playing with those older dudes. And as I got older, I had to start defending myself, defending, um, standing up for myself. And I remember first fight I got into with one of my brothers, real fight. I was in the ninth grade. My brother, Michael, who's uh, passed away at this point. Um, Mike, we were playing basketball. We had like a little eight and a half foot goal. And I flushed it on him. <laughs> he got mad at me. And I stole him. Bop, bop, bop. And I you know, had to run to the house before he got me. But uh, he thought about, oh, he hit me? I'm going to get it back. But at that point, I knew that I had to start standing up for myself. When my mom and dad left, they tried to, like, take advantage of me sometimes. I didn't let it happen anymore. 
But my brother Daryl, who's next to me, is the only one I never really got because uh, he's a little different. You know, he's a recon from the Marines, and uh, he's a little crazier than I maybe. And uh, I never, never tried him too much because he could do some things with his hands that they don't teach regular people. <laughs> so, B-Man, this is the second time we talked today, and Dre just brought up Michael Jordan, right? And earlier, yeah. you asked me a question about Michael Jordan, and I kind of got a little salty. You know, I grew up as a Knicks fan, <laughs> and Isaiah Thomas is my guy. And then you were like, you know, me and MJ are friends. And I was like, what? So explain yeah. to me, like, break down how you guys became friends and what MJ is like off the court just being his friend. Well, I met Mike uh, the first time when I was uh... – uh, Kelvin Bryant, who went to North Carolina with them, I met him uh, at like 91, 92, I think it was. And then uh, he came here, and then Donnie Simpson was good friends with him. And Donnie and I would play golf with Mike, and we went out a few times with him. And then just uh, going down there to Charlotte, uh, where Fred Whitfield has a golf tournament, I would go down there, and Mike is there all the time. And I know people say a lot, and they think a lot, based off of uh, the statement he made, the one that you said today, that Republicans buy shoes, too. I think a lot of people got upset at that, but hell, it is true, to be honest with you. But when you see him, that competitive nature that you see on the basketball court, that's every day, all day about anything. He doesn't change from that. And I think the thing about him is very, and I, I look at myself being similar, if you tell me I can't do something, I'm not stopping until I prove you wrong. And that's the way he's always been. And I know like a lot of people say what, what Mike didn't do and, that, and all those things, Mike doesn't talk about what he does. And if you were to find out the amount of things he's done, you know, sending people to school, scholarship, taking care of everything, taking care of families, spending a lot of money on different, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I, like charities and all those different things, he, he doesn't speak it. And I think that's, that's a major difference between today's people and people that came back my day and our father. We just do what we need to do. We don't need a camera to be there. I remember when I was in Philadelphia and uh, I was doing stuff at CHOP and I was riding in this little bike thing with these people and the team found out I was doing it. They said, why didn't you tell us? We would have a camera there. I said, that's the, that's the thing. I don't want a camera there. The kids in the, in the hospital and their parents, they know what I'm doing and that's all that matters to me. But they want to try to take something off of it. So Mike does his thing, we keep moving. And a lot of people today, they have a camera or they're going to promote it before it's ever done. Because that's what the life, that's how life is now. So I don't have a problem with that way. If that's what you want to do, you do it. But I want to make sure that people understand people do things a lot behind the scenes. Because, you know, Chris and I, you, you, you and I talk sometimes where athletes, there are way more good athletes that do positive things than there are bad athletes that do bad things. But you never hear about that because they don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about the athlete. They rather talk about an athlete who got stopped speeding than an athlete who gave a million dollars to an organization or something like that. And it's, it's stupid, but, you know, it's the life we live in, and I think you got to be – you have to be you. That's the ultimate thing. You have to be you. And I think Mike is at the point where he can give a damn what anybody thinks. The man has been ultraly – I mean, super successful, successful at whatever thing – all the things he's tried to do, and, and people that say something negative, he doesn't care. B. Mitch, how much money have you personally donated to Jordan by losing to him on a golf course since he's that competitive? Uh, no, I'm man. smart. See, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't play that game with everybody else. I understand that if Mike tries to bet a million, it's like me betting a hundred. All right? So what I do, I say, I'm going to bet you $100 that we can play front and back. Okay? That's how I'm going to do it. 
because hey, he's good, but he ain't great. I could get him on. I, I get him on the front. He may get me on the back. We break even. I walk out of there. But the thing about this dude, he'll bet you you can't get up and down. You have a three foot putt. He'll say ten thousand dollars. You don't make it. Think about it. If you're putting a three foot putt and it's no bet on it, you don't care if you make it or not. But if you got ten thousand dollars riding on it, all of a sudden you trembling and everything else. You missed the putt. That's ten grand. So that's the type of bets that he has out there now. Amar Rashard, he they they bet a lot, you know. Uh, what's the uh, Martin Eric Martin, who's been a receiver with the Saints, they bet a lot. I've seen them do a lot of things. LT and all those guys. I don't I don't do all that. I'm smart. I got kids to go to college, man. <laughs> Look, one one more thing with you, B. Mitch, as far as basketball is concerned. I remember there must have been some of that intelligence from Michael Jordan and his basketball IQ when you and I hosted a show during the 2017 finals. Okay, do you remember this? The Cavs were down three nothing to the Warriors, and we host a show. And I say, Hey, B. Mitch, you know. LeBron James and the Cavs are done. You're like, no, they're not, Chris. All LeBron has to do is take the ball to hold and stop passing, stop being passive. Yeah. I'm looking at you like, maybe this guy should stick to football. Well, apparently, I mean, you were right because the Cavs are the only team to ever come back from down 3 nothing, and LeBron took over, man. So bring us back to that moment in history. Like, what was going through your mind on the show to say that? The thing of it is, listen, I know every time we talk about Jordan, somebody want to talk about LeBron. I'm trying to tell LeBron, so I want to talk about Jordan. But ultimately, both of those guys, like John Thompson always told me that you have to understand, you're comparing at the highest level. They're both great. But the one thing that I think LeBron was missing that, that Jordan naturally had was if something needs to be done, he's not going to wait for somebody else to do it. And he's not going to sit up there and try to figure it out. He's just going to do it himself. And I think in that series, you can see LeBron was having his way, doing whatever he wanted to do. But he kept trying to incorporate everybody else who were going out tripping over their own feet. But then when he decide, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, they end up winning a series because, like a lot of times I hear people go, well, LeBron averaging 20-something and doing this amount of assists, this amount of rebounds. I've always said, what if he averaged 10 more points a game? He'll have a lot more championships. Because the fact that he is always trying to incorporate everyone. Listen, everybody ain't ready for that stage. And think about it, as good as Scottie Pippen was, he wasn't ready for that stage to take over. As long as he had Big Brother Mike with him, and then when he had badass Big Brother Dennis Robert come along with him, he was able to do some things. But when those people left, he couldn't. So when you are an alpha dog, you have to be an alpha dog. You've never seen me walking in the room. I don't care if I'm known or they bigger than me or not. I'm going to be who I am. You know, that's just who I'm not going to start all of a sudden start bowing down to somebody. I wasn't raised that way. B, let me, and I don't want to keep you long, so I got some some good, quick questions to ask you. You came here, you played for the great Joe Gibbs. Mm -hmm. You won a Super Bowl. You played for Andy Reid. Yep. He went to Kansas City. He won a Super Bowl. I'm not asking you to say who's better of the two because they're both great coaches, but what experience can you t tell our viewers and tell us about playing for Joe Gibbs and playing for Andy Reid? Well, I think I told Andy when I got to Philadelphia, as I watched him a little bit, I told him that he reminded me a lot of Joe Gibbs because uh, the, in the aspect that Joe and Andy both, they hire people that they trust in and they allow those people to do their jobs. You rarely hear them talking unless everything is going wrong. And they're going to be fair with you. They're going to treat you like men. And what they tell you, they mean. You know, you watch Andy. Andy gives people chances that a lot of teams won't give a chance. Andy Reid will bring people back. You know, Joe Gibbs was the same way. You know, everybody talking about, well, Joe Gibbs was this. I'll say, 
guys, Riggins played for Joe Gibbs. Okay. Wilbur Marshall played for Joe Gibbs. Dexter Manley played for Joe Gibbs. Hell, I played for Joe Gibbs. And we, I was saying, like, I was kind of a renegade. You know, I, I get on the football field, I'm going to do me. And Andy Reid noticed that too. But don't, both of those dudes are offensive geniuses, man. They understand how to use the talent that they have. You watch Joe. Joe got here. He came in with this Air Coyier offense, and they wanted to throw the ball around. They're 0-5. He realized, I don't have the personnel to do that. So they started running the football. Then they got to the point where you would know that they're running the 60-70 counter, and you could do nothing about it because they will out-execute you. So Andy Reid, you watch him. Brian Westbrook, uh, DeMatha. You know, you take Brian and you spit him out to do different things. He had an advantage over linebackers. He had an advantage over safety trying to come down and check him. And you watch what Andy does now. He has speed. He makes his team put you – he puts the stress on the defense over and over again. I love both of those dudes, you know. I'll tell you, I think Joe Gibbs was the, is the best because what Joe Gibbs – Joe Gibbs was able to so calmly just take care of things, you know. Andy has that same type of mentality, but it took him a little longer. Joe figured it out quicker. And I think when you went into a locker room with Joe Gibbs and you came out after he made adjustments to a game plan, you just knew it was going to work. You automatically felt it was going to work. Two, two quick ones, B. You're known as a trash talker. The, mm-hmm. the person that you hated the most, and then when you saw him, said, man, he going to get an earful today, or the person that you loved and learned from the most that you said, I'm going to incorporate what they taught me to this. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I consider what I do smart talking, not trash talking, because I never cared about what I was saying. I was just trying to get you off your game. And if you got off your game, more power to it. And I, I researched different things to find out what I could talk about. Because, you know, I know how to, uh, you, you know how to annoy any kind of man. You find something with the lady in their life and you say something, then they're going to be annoyed. But at the end of the game, I'd always tell guys that I saw the, the name here or there to make sure no, no misunderstandings happen if they went home and thought about some things. But uh, <laughs> I don't think it was anybody that I really disliked that, that much but Isaac Hope from the Dallas Cowboys. Because at one time he told me about uh, what he was going to Yeah, you keep talking. I'm going to have to cut you. I'm like, what, you got a damn knife in your pants or something? So I had to go at him. And that was like my first or second year. So, But the thing about it, I just wanted to find whatever I can do to get you off your game. And if I was able to do that, I'm never going to let off. I will do it the rest of your career. If you let me say something to annoy you so much to where you're going to do something stupid on the football field, why not keep doing it? But the person that I uh, enjoyed so much was Ernest Biner, to where Ernest talked trash, but you never basically saw him looking like he was talking trash. You know, he was so under control. And he said, oh, I started calling him Ninja Turtle because, you know, he always – Throw his little, like he wanted to go do some karate against somebody. So I always called him that. But that dude was so prepared. He knew things. I had the number of the moves that he would use. But do unbelievable football player. And he taught me also just how to be a man off the football field. And I think that's the thing where Ernest kind of took a, a liking to me. And w- when he was telling me to come to his house, he talked to me more about life than he did football. And anytime I see somebody invest in that aspect of me, I wanted to, I've always respected those people. I'll tell you this, Brian, on behalf of the whole Step to the Mic crew, Ted Jeffries, Dino Campbell, Monica McNutt, my main man, C. Miles, that Hall of Fame gold jacket is coming to you soon, my man, because you look at them stats, number two all-time and all-purpose yards. That's it, bro. 
You don't have to say running back, kick return, or anything. <laughs> the stats speak for themselves. And look, you've always been a stand-up dude. We love you. We couldn't get into your charity work. We couldn't get into your cooking. We'd be here all night. We'll do that again. I'll come on another time. That's right. But look, look bro, we appreciate you stepping to the mic. And man, thank you so much, B. We love you in DC, DMV, the whole nine, bro. All right, man. Y'all be cool.